welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I have the incredible pleasure of sitting down with Randy Post, who's a multiple championship winning professional race car driver, track tester, automotive journalist, and video host for Haggerty. Randy, incredibly excited to have you on the podcast. As I've said before, when we were getting introduced, I'm a absolute car freak and I've grown up, um, you know, watching Top Gear and playing car video games that have completely shaped my passion for cars. But then kind of you being one of the voices over the last decade plus that has just been an authority and a shaper of my perspective on cars. It's a huge honor to have you on the podcast very excited to kind of explore your career journey. So why don't we just jump right into it? Can you take us through your career journey through this incredible industry? That's a great subject. Me. And <laughs> thank you for inviting me. And it's so kind of you. I'm glad to hear that somebody was listening. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, too, am a dyed-in-the-wool car enthusiast ever since I was born. And uh, I'm... I go back to pre-Hot Wheels, oh wow, Matchbox cars, and uh, then Hot Wheels. I was always playing with cars, and when I was, I uh, couldn't wait to get my driver's license. Uh, you know, when I was 12, 13, I dreamed about that. Yeah, my dad was very generous. Uh, he was an Air Force guy. Um, so we were raised not real rich <laughs> with uh, three kids. But um, I had a mini bike, uh, had a little motorcycle he got me. But boy, when I got my driver's license, one of the biggest days of my life. And it, it still, uh, it amazes me when, well, like even my own stepdaughter was not really interested in a driver's license at first. Yeah. She's a hardcore driver now, though, God bless her. <laughs> but I don't get that. Anyway, I loved the driving and I stumbled on a sport called autocross when I was 19 years old in college. Um, me and a couple of my buddies, um, I, I, I went towards the sporty cars, you know, yeah. small manual transmission, four cylinders. My first car was a Fiat 850 Spider. You probably don't even know what that is, <laughs> but it's half the size of a Miata, if you can imagine that. Yeah. And, uh, Great fun. Then I had a Datsun 510, which is a wonderful car and still is. Uh, I don't have it, but uh, me and my buddies used to go back in an area in Florida. I lived in Melbourne, Florida, in, uh, where they had put down roads, but never put down houses. You know, an unsuccessful oh, wow. development. Well, guess what? You find the right group of roads and you got a racetrack. That's right. And we do laps. and. Um, Anyway, so I was into corners. I liked corners. Most of the other kids I knew who were into cars liked straight line, drag racing, you know, burning rubber, V8s. Uh, that wasn't me. I liked corners. Something about the feeling of the G-forces and, and the sense of control driving through a corner fast. Yeah. Turns my brain on in a way that almost nothing else does. and. It turns on like a drug, some sort of endorphin, some sort of natural born drug starts flowing and 
turns my brain on and it feels so good yeah. that I became addicted and I still am. And so I stumbled on this autocross and autocross is a, a timed time trial race in a parking lot or a big or an airport runway. And it's like slalom skiing with your car. Yeah. You're swerving back and forth between these traffic cones and a 19 year old kid could do it. You can do it in whatever car you have. The sport still exists. It's a big, big deal for people that want to race without a lot of risk because you really it, it's hard to wreck. All you hit are traffic cones. Right. And uh, from I, I found an event. I watched one and I thought, wow, this looks like it could be fun. And then I went to one and they have something called fun runs. After the event is over, I you can give them a dollar. This is in 1977. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had this Datsun 510, which I didn't even know what a great little car it was. I just liked it. I thought it looked cool. It was lowered. Yeah. And um, most kids I know were jacking cars up and putting 50 series wide tires on the back. And no, I liked it lowered, sporty corners, Peter. Yeah. And uh, so I go out on this fun run. And I had studied the course. It's tricky. You've got to go through all these gates and swerve around these slaloms, just like slaloms, King. And holy cow, it felt so good. But you're doing it as fast as you can. Yeah. And it's legal. <laughs> and it's kind of <laughs> safe. It's in a giant parking lot. And so I'm whipping through these cones. And I'm going down this, this straights. The straights are like, 50 yards long. It's a small course. Your speeds probably don't get much over. Okay. Your speeds are not more than 50, 60 miles an hour. And most of the turns are more like 30 miles an hour. It's tight, yeah. but you're at the limit. You're going as fast as you can. And there was, that's the part that turned my brain on and made those endorphins or whatever you'd call them flow. Yeah, and that felt so good, and I'm <laughs> I'm pounding the dash because I want the car to go faster. I actually cracked the dash on my car. <laughs> so it was like, go 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 go! Come on, like this, you know. And uh, I was 19 years old. Well, guess what? I loved it so much from that first run in March of 1977. Wow. I have pushed to do every single track day I could ever since. Yeah. And I still do. I went to an autocross here in Atlanta on Sunday. I was home and uh, I'm, I'm still in deeply involved in the sports car club of America, the SECA. It's an amateur club for um, sports car events like that and road racing all over the country. I've been writing a column about, racing for 20 years. Wow. I believe it's 20 years. And uh, there were these young kids there that were just like me way back in 1977. I loved them. There was a kid with a, like a 98 Toyota Corolla stick shift. And there was a kid with a Lincoln town car, <laughs> an old one. And he told me about how he put a cam in it and he did the brakes and all this stuff and he drove well. And I loved them because they reminded me of me when I started and I respect it. And I know what they're feeling. 
They're feeling those juices that flow when you drive a car as fast as you can. Yeah. And Peter, you said you've done 115 podcasts with all kinds of walks of life. Well, I think everybody, when you're involved in something that really focuses your brain, they have the same kind of feeling. Yeah. It feels good. I don't know if it's, I don't care if it's a refrigerator business or playing the flute or painting a picture. When you get really into something, when it focuses your brain and turns you on, that same kind of feeling flows. But this is so driving a car fast or a motorcycle. I was actually a motorcycle guy first. Oh, wow. My beloved father buying me a little motorcycle to ride. Um, and these feelings turn on my brain and make drugs flow that I immediately became addicted to. And I still am. Uh, I'm, I'm 66 years old. I can't believe it. I don't even like saying it <laughs> because I don't believe it until I look in the mirror. And then I'm like, whoa, who is that guy? Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's how I got into it was starting with autocross and I was pretty good at it right from the beginning, too. I have a wonderful brother, and um, he and I have the same genes, same mom and dad, but we are so different. Gary works hard on things. He likes music. He also was a businessman. He had a real job, like with CNN and marketing for many years. Oh, cool. He works on something and gets good at it. With determination and learning and research, I ain't like that. I didn't. I don't like doing things if I don't tend to be pretty good at it right off the bat. Yeah, <laughs> call me lazy. I don't know, but with driving cars fast or motorcycles, for that matter. Although, guess what? I was never dumb enough to try to race a motorcycle. Not <laughs> dumb, but the risk is far higher. Absolutely. All, every person has their level of risk that they're willing to endure in life, right? And some people, it's more than others. And mine, I was happy to race cars. I love riding motorcycles, but I don't want to race one. Of course, this is a total sidetrack. Almost everybody I know who races a motorcycle says that they will not ride it on the street because it's too dangerous. Very interesting. <laughs> and uh, you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. but. Um, I don't know. It reminds me of football. If you play football, you're going to get hurt. In yeah. fact, you're going to be hurt every single time there's the whistle, the, the hike goes, the snap, and you run into guys as fast as you can. In a motorcycle, if you race it, you're going to get hurt. It's an, In a yeah. car, no, probably not. And, and I've had a lot of crashes in 35 years of racing. And I got a bruised elbow once. I got a real concussion a couple of times, which is the new injury that we're just starting to learn about concussions. And uh, that was it because we have roll cages and helmets and seat belts and uh, head restraints now. That was a right. real improvement. It's, it's um, safe enough for me. Normal people think I'm crazy, <laughs> but, um, well, I do the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, and we could talk about that, too. 
anyway, it, it's it's this risk that actually increases the focus in the brain. Right. And creates those. I call them endorphins. I don't know if that's the correct medical term, but it, it the risk creates the feelings that I feel in my brain. Those drugs flow that make me feel more alive and that create a focus that feels so good that I want more of it. Yeah. And there's one other thing that does that for me, Peter, but I, I don't think we should talk about it in mixed company. I'll just leave that up <laughs> to you. But racing cars or riding a motorcycle reasonably quickly down a winding mountain road, um, I go slower there because I manage my risk. And that's what racing is, too. You've got to manage your risk. That's another good story. Remind me to tell you about how racing is risk management. Yeah. It's it's not crazy like they say. Uh, have you noticed I'm very much a stream of consciousness talking? I'm, I'm, I'm hanging off of every word, though. I love it. This is how I've lived my life. My life. I, I don't think I'm like most of your other interviewees. They're probably more like my brother. They organize, plan, arrange. They're smart. They go to school. They learn what they want to learn, and they work hard. I'm not like that. I I play. I'm a playful person. I don't want to work. And if I work, my brain starts shutting down. If it feels like work, yeah. you know what I mean? That's why I've always been a terrible runner. I need to, I needed to exercise. We all need to exercise, but my exercise needed to be more like play because it needed to turn my brain on more. And a lot of people that run, especially long distances, their brain's already on. I think they think about things. Their brain is working while they're running and they're not thinking about the work. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know about you, but I think about every single step and how hard it is and how I can't wait till it's over. And I look at my watch and I'm like, oh, it's been 38 seconds since I last looked at my yeah. watch. And I've only been running for three and a half minutes and I need to run for 30 minutes to get my proper workout. Anyway, that point is my brain does not work if I think it's work. I, I don't put my head down and work. I want to play. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, I have stumbled into this career that allowed me to play. Uh, and gosh, I think back over it. There were several times in my road racing career where it came to a halt. Right. I lost my ride. I didn't have any connections. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And the phone rang or I ran into somebody at a race and I got a connection and boom, there I was again, back in a ride, moving on with my road racing career. It's it's scary to look back. It has always been scary. Um, well, I mean, earlier in my career, I couldn't look back. I didn't have much to look back on. Yeah. But I didn't know what I was doing next. I right. almost never had a deal for more than one year. And the only time I did was when I had a contract with Audi to race and it was two years. 
But after a while, I got into this racing career and somewhere in the late 90s, it got to be successful enough that it was my only source, real source of income was yeah. driving race cars. People hired me to drive race cars. I didn't bring sponsors. I didn't bring money. I'm very proud of that, Peter. Yeah. And I don't think there's very many people like that. There's a few. It's very few, especially in the 2000s and two, 2010s, uh, guys that were racing cars because they were hired as a driver, and that's it. They didn't bring a sponsor. Now, racing, in spite of efforts to make it cheaper and cheaper, it gets more and more expensive. Yeah. And you've got to have all this money behind you. And there, the uh, driver training is better, too. So guess what? There's a lot of people that are really good at this. When I first started racing in the 80s and the 90s, there wasn't as much. There, there wasn't data didn't exist. Right. Video almost didn't exist. You were on your own out there. And so it was more of a sport that was built on your natural ability. There was um, there were driving schools like Skip Barber Racing School has always been a good one. I worked for them early on. Uh, Bob Bondurant, which is now, uh, it's got another name in Phoenix. Um, good school. But these were just schools. They, they weren't something that happened at the racetrack. You didn't come out of your car and sit down with an engineer and go over your data. Yeah, That's what you do now. And you have you can have a coach that can look at your data and your video and see everything you're doing and help guide you. And this has narrowed, not narrowed the field, it has increased the field a lot yeah. of people that are pretty good, pretty darn good. So you got to separate yourself by having money when you go for a ride. Yeah. They're like, oh, you want to drive my race car? How much money are you bringing? I know you're good. And um, back then, uh, you, you could get hired more just because you were good. Yeah. Because you would be. You'd. I was normally at the top of the class and there was almost always a couple people, especially one, but a couple of people that were also very good. Yeah. And this bull, when you think about say somebody's going to waltz up there and blow everybody in the weeds because they're magic. No, you'll always find somebody who's right there. And maybe you're ahead of him, but he's right there or she right there. And um, there now there's more of that. <laughs> a, right. a lot of people can get really good at driving a car. Um, my favorite driving instructor, mentor, friend, hero is a guy named Terry Earwood. Terry is a little older than me. Terry worked as chief driving instructor for the uh, Skip Barber Racing School back then, and he raced yeah. in the same series I was in back then, in the 80s and 90s. Also, by the way, a very successful drag racer. Right. But I mean road racing. One of very few people who's been really good at both of those. Anyway, Terry used to say, we can teach anybody 90% of how to go fast in a race car. I forget his numbers. <laughs> and then there was a certain small percentage you can't teach. 
Yeah. I don't care who you are. There's a little bit that you can't learn. You got to have it. You got to have it. And uh, that for me is beautiful and it's the magic. And whatever that is, I have it. Am I the best guy that ever drove? No. I know my shortcomings. Just like, you ever seen the movie Amadeus? Yes. Well, Mozart. In the movie Amadeus, Amadeus is a prodigy. He has this gift. And he's just naturally so good at it. Well, the official composer for the king of Vienna, I think, is Salieri. And Salieri has learned how to do it. He knows music. But he doesn't have that gift of of the magic. And it frustrates the hell out of Salieri because Mozart is so damn good at it. Yeah. And he can do it upside down on, on his head, playing the piano, making up a tune with his hands backwards. And Salieri is like sitting in front of a cross going, let's see, da-da-da. What should that next note be? Da right. da da da. Oh, thank you, Monsignor. Thank you. It's one scene in the movie. He's thanking the Lord Jesus for helping him write this tune. <laughs> Mozart sits down at the piano and he plays an entire concerto that he just made up in his head. Right. <laughs> it's beautiful. That's how it is when you're really good at it. And but it's narrower than it used to be because the training is so darn good. Right, right. And, and I don't like that. And because I don't want the competition, I want to win. <laughs> the only way that you win is by having as little competition as possible. Yeah. I never wanted good competition. I wanted a pro career. I wanted to make a living at this. I wanted to win a lot. So the more competition there is, the harder it is to do that. Right. Those other teams, those other drivers are good. And so <laughs> I didn't want good competition. I mean, I appreciate it and I enjoy it, but I want to win. So early in my career, I was choosing, I would choose a series and a car mm. that had the best chance of winning for the most, guess what? Money, because <laughs> it takes money to make a racing career work. Right. Racing is expensive, and it's more expensive than ever. And I don't want to go into a series where there are 20 cars that can win. I want to go to a new series where there's one or two right. good guys, or maybe none. In, in my career, one thing that really helped me several times in road racing was when I was hired to a new team because typically the reason that team is looking for a driver is they need either their first pro or the guy they have driver. They have is not good enough. He's not yeah. getting it done. Right. So guess what? I walk into a car that has untapped potential. Right. And I'm a guy that can get that untapped potential. So it was very common for me to join a team and then win the first race or two that I do with the team. That happened several times in my career. Right. And it was because these cars in most of the racing that I was doing, 
was in uh, production-based cars or GT racing. Yeah. So the cars would have started as a real Porsche or a real Camaro or a real Mazda, and they were modified. And they have these days they call it balance of performance. BOP is a big deal. You'll hear about that if you follow IMSA GT racing. Yeah. Because there's all these different cars from a Lexus to a Lamborghini to a Corvette to a BMW. And they're constantly trying to equalize the performance of the cars. Right. Well, guess what? If that team isn't as good, the car doesn't look as good. And they allow the car to have a little better stuff. Well, if they get a new driver like me, right. and I step into this car that's not been doing as well, which is part of why they're looking for a driver, the car has some advantages. Right. And so for me as a driver, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I'm in a good place. That happened uh, several times in my career. And we went out and we won. And yeah. uh, right off the bat, that's a good way to solidify your ride yeah yeah. <laughs> so win the first race that you do and um a little side note to that is something else i learned in racing this is probably true in any competitive environment and what environment is not competitive to some extent anyway if you have a competitive advantage guard it keep it a secret don't let it out you need to hold that back as long as you can. This is something that still happens. Racing interviews are really some of the worst racing or some of the worst interviews you'll ever hear because you they interview a guy, number one, he just won the race. So everything went his way. He won. Right. Hey, I'm happy. Yonderall's Castrol Mazda was running perfect the whole race. Well, of course it was, you won. Yeah. And he's not going to tell you why he's guarding that. He's like, yeah, "Yeah, well, you know, we got a little more straight line speed than these other guys. And that's because the BOP is not right. Hell no. They're never going to say that. The better interviews are the people that lost. Right. You need to go interview the guys that lost. And I've done a little bit of TV. I've done a little bit of commentating. And it's funny. I had kind of had a little career going there. And I don't know what happened. It evaporated. Maybe I wasn't pushing hard enough. I don't <laughs> know what. But I always thought that if I get into this deep enough, I'm going to go interview the guy that was leading and right. lost. Right. That's a better story. And in my career, we used to run the race. And then after the race, you'd call home and tell them how you did. Right. Well, if you won, it's a short story. Yeah. You call back home. Hey, how'd it go? I won. Oh, great. What else do you have to say? You won. Right. right. But if you go, well, I was fourth. But <laughs> I was leading. It was going great. And then a deer ran out in front of me. And this kid threw his lollipop <laughs> off the street. And I had to spin to go around it. And, you know, it's a better story yeah. when you don't win, typically, because of the drama. And you could have. For every race where somebody won, where any race I won, I think, oh, man, I'm the best. My team is the best. Guess what? One, two, three, four, five more other people would have, could have, and should have won that race. But 
this went wrong, that went wrong, that went wrong. And it was just your day or you did a better job of preparing. Right. But there's always people that could have and should have won that had problems that make for better stories in the inter- in the interviews after the race. Right. You got to interview those guys, although they're probably depressed. <laughs> but again, this is part of why I like racing, too. There's right. a lot going on and my brain needs a lot going on. Um, I, that leads me to another point. I was reading an article years ago, uh, probably in the 90s. It was about attention deficit disorder, ADD. Yeah. And I thought, oh, yeah, ADD. What's that? Squirrel. Oh, look. There's a <laughs> on the wall. That's what we think ADD is, being easily distracted, right? Right. Well, I read this article, and they listed the symptoms. And, yes, that's that's part of it. But guess what? They listed some other symptoms like, can you be watching TV and be so into it that you don't hear somebody talk to you? Right. And you be doing something that you enjoy or that just draws your interest so hard that you forget about everything else on earth. Right. You forget that you had a podcast. Yeah, I forgot all about that. Remember I told you I set a lot of alarms because I get into what I'm doing. And the whole world goes away. Right. And this drove my ex-wife crazy. She thought it meant I didn't care. No, I cared very much. But my brain doesn't know the difference. My brain is warped. I have ADD. And that's one of the things that makes me really good at driving race cars. Ah. Because the ADD, somebody with ADD can focus really hard on something that draws their interest for a long time. Yeah. And I can do that. I don't do it on purpose. I don't prepare for it. It just happens. It's part of this laziness. Um, I'm only lazy if I'm not interested in what I'm doing. (laughs) And um, this, this ADD focuses me and, um, Another good example of that was very early in my career, I was doing this autocross. Well, they have state championships. They have national championships. I was just out of college. I did it through college because it was cheap. And I was going to national championships. And I'm at the nationals. I want to win this more than anything in the world. This is my whole life autocross because it's the beginning of racing. Right, And I want to go road racing on track, wheel to wheel, but I don't have the money or the wherewithal to do that yet. And um, strangely, we go all the way to Kansas for the national championships, high pressure. And the way autocross works is you drive up to the line and you only get three tries. Right. And you drive through this course as fast as you can. And you're skimming by these pylons. And when you do a really great run, half the pylons on the track are wobbling when you're done. Yeah, yeah. You're so close to them. You're almost knocking them over. You have to to go fast. So it's nerve wracking. But for me, once I start, I don't really think about that. Right. Because my brain gets turned on. I'm driving at the limit. My brain gets totally focused. I don't think about it. So 
I'm at the, I'm pulling up to the line. I have screwed up. I hit pylons on my other runs. I have one chance and I'm racing against a guy who's really good. Yeah. He's an old friend of mine named Dan Shields from Florida. And Dan was a very precise, clean, calculating driver. And uh, funny thing is, we were joking. We're both from Central Florida. We both drove all the way to Kansas to race each other. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, why did we drive 1,200 miles? And so we're racing each other. Well, Dan decides he's going to play a mind game. And I'm pulling up. I got the windows down because it's late summer, but also because it lowers the center of gravity a little bit. You know, you try these little tricks. But then the aerodynamics are worse, but you're not going fast. Right. And the speed is probably 35 or 40 miles an hour. And uh, so my window's down. It's my turn to go. I'm thinking about the course. I'm getting totally focused. It's it's almost time to go. And Dan walks up to my window. This is very unusual. <laughs> he wants to play a mind game with me. And he he knows that I was at an autocross a week before in Florida. And I had to leave early to go do something, go work or whatever. And there's a guy there that ran the events, but he was kind of he could be annoying, you know, like one of those people who, when they talk to you, they're sort of poking you in the chest yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, Great guy, but he could be annoying. And he wasn't that good an autocrosser. But in their group, they had uh, different classes. And, you know, my car didn't really fit. So this guy was in a car that was, was a lot faster. Uh, but when I left, I was ahead of him. Well, Dan comes up to the window. And, I mean, I'm running pretty soon. And he says, hey, Randy, you know that autocross last weekend? And I looked at him like, what are you doing talking to me, you jerk? And he goes, Terry beat you. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at him. And I said, F you. And (laughs) I turned and it was my turn to go like seconds later. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm mad at Dan. He had really gone beyond the bounds of sportsmanship. I'm calling him out on this. And um, I pull up to the line. The guy says, go. I take off. Completely forget about it. Yeah. I didn't. That whole run, I remember. I'm I'm making my run. I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm driving. I forgot all about Dan and about Terry beating me at that autocross, which irritates me. Yeah. He was right. He knew it. And I forgot all about it. And thank you, uh, racing gods. Yeah. I had a clean run and I beat him. Incredible. <laughs> thank I love goodness. Because I would have been really mad at him. Um, but yeah. you know, your buddies, you're racing, you sometimes yeah. go with you a little far, and that's all part of the sport. And but the ADD. Saved me. I haven't let you say a word, Peter. Well, I have I, one more story. And please, then, yeah. To talk. I was in 2007, which is getting to be a long time ago. I was racing in a series called World Challenge. Right. And World Challenge had two races. They had a race for, for the 500 horsepower cars like 
Corvettes and Ferraris and turbo BMWs and Mustangs. It was called uh, GT class. Right. And I was racing a Porsche in that. And they had another class for smaller cars. They called it touring cars. They were more like 300 horse. And uh, I was in a Mazda 6 front wheel drive. And there were Acura Integras and TSX and BMW 32028 and um, Audi A4, stuff like that. So they had the big cars and the little cars. Yeah. And I'm doing both. I, oh, wow. I've got a good ride in both series. I'm running a Porsche 911 in the big car class with a, a team called K-Pax Racing after the movie K-Pax, which you may not have heard of, but and a team called 3R Auto from Denver. Good team, well-funded, top-notch car. And I'm in a Mazda 6. Yeah. Mazda sponsored by a team from Southern California called TriPoint Engineering with uh, Craig Nagler, still a good friend of mine. I bought a uh, shock from his daughter and son-in-law just two days ago. They have their own business now. Awesome. Anyway, so it's a front-wheel drive Mazda and a rear-engine Porsche 911. Yeah. And the whole season, I get out of one and immediately get in the other one and go practice or qualify or race. And then I get out of that and get in the other one and practice or qualify or race. Yeah. And we're at the last race of the season, 2007. I am leading both championships. Wow. But it's close. There are other drivers that are really good on good teams and they're right there. And so I'm racing the Mazda first. The Porsche race is immediately after it. And I'm racing, I'm racing, I'm leading. I'm proud of this. I'm in the Mazda. I'm first. I need to win the race to win the championship over my teammate. And I should be way ahead of him. But four times this year, four different idiots have punted me off the track. <laughs> somehow, I still have a shot at the championship. You know what? Yeah. I might not have been leading because I had to win. I had to win to win the championship. Yeah. So I'm leading. We're at Laguna Seca, WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca. WeatherTech, great brand, good friends of mine. <laughs> anyway, I'm leading. Then there are five Acuras behind me. Good team. Yeah. Peter Cunningham, real-time racing, sponsored by Acura, and they are good. So it's Mazda, Acura, 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 and then my teammate, and then a couple other Mazdas. I'm leading. Well, one of those Acuras is catching me, Pierre Kleindooming. Really good driver. They had several really good drivers. And there's like three laps to go. Yeah, three or four laps to go in the race. I got to win this, and this Acura is catching me. I'm feeling the heat, and I blow a corner and turn 10 at Laguna. I get into it's steep downhill, easy to do. You can't charge that corner because it goes downhill and the car gets light. I run wide, I don't get a good exit, and he's coming. Yeah. And I know I'm in trouble. He's going to try to pass me in the next corner. So I go to the inside and I make him try me on the outside. I'm giving you the long story here. But he goes, he goes to the outside. I go back to the outside right next to him and I hold him out there 
Yeah. It's called taking the line away. I did yeah. not touch him. Did not touch him. But he didn't like it. Well, I don't like it. People have done it to me. I don't like it. But if they don't yeah. touch me. Anyway, I go over. I hold him wide. And then I turn and take off. I deliberately forced him to be on a bad line coming out of the corner. It's a good move. <laughs> and I wanted to win this championship. And I take off. I get a good little gap on him. It worked. Halfway down the straight, my stupid car transmission is getting a little tired. It's a sequential. And when they get tired, they shift themselves. So it shifted up from like fourth to fifth early. Yeah. And these engines like to rev up real high. It slowed the car down. And I'm looking at that going, oh, God, do I shift back down and back up? Or do I, I just leave it where it is? I don't know which would be better. Meanwhile, here comes Pierre. Of He's course. catching me again because my car is not in the right gear. It's slower. And uh, just it, just bad luck. It's the only time it happened was on that straight. He catches me as we go down into turn two at Laguna, which is really like the first corner. Yeah. Turn two at Laguna. He catches me, drives into me, and spins me right off the track. Pierre was really good at that. I mean, I knew the guy well. He's a good racer, and he was really good at spinning people out if they pissed him off. He's one yeah. of those guys. So I'm spun out. All five actors go by. My teammate goes by. Oh, I'm trying goodness. to get a gear. Sequentials, it's hard to downshift them when you're not moving. Yeah. So I'm looking for a gear, and it's, it's a solid line of cars. I finally get going in like 10th or 12th place. Kleinubing. They black flag him, but he doesn't come in. Wow. Because the race is almost over anyway. He doesn't come in. And he finishes first. He doesn't win. They take the win away from him. And I finish like 10th or something. So my teammate wins the championship, not me. And the I'm I sidetracked with a big story there, but I'm upset. Yeah. You know, I, this guy took me out. I didn't think it was fair. I didn't think it was right. Sure, I put him in a bad position, but I never touched him. And guess what? That's racing. It's a check chess game. I don't touch people to win races, but I will run you wide. Right. And uh, he wasn't used to that kind of a power move because people were afraid of him because he would take you out. And right. he did. Right. And he didn't win the race. Whoever was third won the race. But uh, I come around, I got to, now I got to get out of that Mazda and get in the Porsche. Right. And so there's only 15 minutes between the races. That's crazy. And I'm buckling in the Porsche. And um, one of my favorite commentators, Greg Creamer, comes up, sticks a mic in my face. I'm buckling up in the Porsche. And uh, Greg is, is the greatest commentator there is. He's wonderful. He walks up, Randy, that's tough, man. After what you've just been through, now you got to drive this Porsche. How are you going to deal with that? And he sticks a mic right in my face. I don't mind. I love the mic. Can you yeah. tell? He sticks a mic right in my face. And I go, ADD, Greg. I'll forget <laughs> all about it when the green flag falls. <laughs> oh, my and goodness. And you know what? Sure enough, it did. And I won that race in wow. the Porsche. And I won that championship, 
but I was second in the other one. Wow. So just missed getting Double that feather in my cap of winning both the same year. It was close. And so in the Mazda, it was a factory deal. It was a really good deal. I ran that for three years and I finished second, second, and second in the championship. Oh, <laughs> I never won it. Wow. In the first two years, it was my fault because I made stupid mistakes. I did something wrong. It was my fault. Yeah. The third year, uh-uh, four guys crashed Brutal. me that year. Four of them in varying circumstances. Yeah. Four different drivers. I could write a book about that. Yeah. And I almost won it, but then basically, basically I screwed up that corner and helped Pierre catch me. Yeah. And created my own. If I had driven better, he wouldn't have caught me. On the other hand, it was me and a Mazda and five Acuras. Right. So I was doing something pretty good. I, first of all, I'm hanging off of every word and anyone who's a car enthusiast that's listening to this or will listen to this is going to be doing the exact same. And even as you're describing that experience with Porsche and Mazda, you're driving a real wheel, a rear, a rear drive car, right? Rear engine car, real wheel drive, and then a front engine, front wheel drive. Two completely different dynamics from a handling perspective, two completely stratospheres of performance, and you're hopping in from one to the other and basically sitting at the top of the mountain of both championships. Now, if we don't you know, recognize that as incredible skill, talent, and then also just the perfect example of why racing I find as such an admirable pursuit because it's almost entirely merit-based outside of that kind of money and funding piece that you talked about. And that's what, you know, when I think right before this call you talked about and you echoed it during your um, kind of talked up to this point about not being like the other guests uh, that I've had on the, the show. I think, yes, you're right. But where I challenge you in terms of, definition of success is that you've done something you've absolutely loved your entire career and continue to love. Right. And that honestly, it oozes out of you. Even as you're telling these stories, there's just pure joy in your voice. And I don't know that I hear that in every interview that I've done on here with folks are who are objectively successful in other, um, you know, pursuits, but that's, what's amazing here. And even the way you described the pride you have in the rarity of the fact that you never brought money to the table, it was always based on merit and ability. I think that's amazing. And then beyond that though, where I challenge you further is there's actually a lot of strategy in what you did and you articulated it. This idea of always looking for the car with untapped potential, looking for the car and balancing performance, I think is a very cool thing. Obviously you don't have it in formula one, but whether it's world endurance championship or an IMSA or India or otherwise, I think it's super cool as a way to keep wheel to wheel racing really strong, but you know, finding untapped potential in the car in a team and being able to demonstrate really high level performance immediately to secure your next ride, being able to, even though you love racing, understand that without money, there's no more racing for you. So prioritizing, you know, securing the money to be able to continue your career and being able to dispassionately do that. That's a strategy. That's a tactic, right? Like lots of folks in different types of careers need to be able to prioritize better the types of things they spend time on, where they place their bets in their career, 
what organization, what career path, et cetera. And you were very focused in that. You knew that you had to be driving a race car and to, to do that, you need money. So you have to prioritize putting yourself in a situation that gave you the best probability of doing that. That's really incredible focus and strategy around how to continue to progress your career. Now, mind you, obviously being able to, to also back it up with, with race winning performance is a whole nother thing, right? Because I'm sure you've seen thousands of folks who were pretty good at driving, but couldn't convert into that like elite level that allowed them to have careers. But I, and that's what I find so exciting in listening to, to everything that you said, because I see so many of those types of things. And then even being hyper conscious of your shortcomings or understanding, let's say, you know, your lack of your like understanding your, uh, ADD, for example, you turn that into a superpower, right? And instead of focusing on the fact that you allow yourself to get, you're able to get distracted easily. Instead, you're like, well, hold on, let me hone the strength of this, you know, my circumstance and actually use it as, as this wild competitive differentiator where I'm able to zero out everything else and, and perform well, at a high that level. Really, that just happens. I don't, I can't get credit consciously for that. <laughs> but, but I think what's important is that Thank you're you. able to reflect on it now. Right. And, and for me, yeah. selfishly for this podcast, I'm able to articulate it as something that folks should look at, you know, understanding your strengths and doubling down on those and then looking at your weaknesses and, or, or gaps and either finding a way to circumnavigate them, level them up or turn them into a superpower in any way that you can. I think that's really important too. But one thing that I want to talk about that I think was really cool that, that you mentioned is this idea of like kind of the stakes and managing risk and feeling alive when you're at the limit and uh, you're super focused right in, in the moment. And when I think about that outside of racing and I apply it, let's say I mentioned I'm a consultant and I've tried to think to myself, as you're saying it, when do I feel that in my job? And I was able to find a moment. And when I'm trying to sell new business and I'm in a pitch in front of a big executive of a fortune 100 company, that's when I have that similar feeling. What you like, we talked yeah. about the stakes are high. I have to yeah. be able to perform. I'm hyper-focused. Nothing else matters. I'm zoned in. And when it goes well, I have incredible feelings of fulfillment and like excitement coming out of it. Yes. And yeah, then I think about it. it. If you can't find that in your job, you got to be finding something else to do because you, even if it's not there all the time, if you, if you have even a little bit of it, it's going to make everything else worth it. And I'm wondering now I'm going to, now I'm going on a monologue and I want to tangent into, you know, kind of yes. your post racing career. Have you been able to emulate that be feeling of being alive in your kind of writing and media career now as kind of an automotive journalist tester person in, you know, that is in part of content creation that shapes so many people's perspectives on cars. Are you able to emulate that feeling in this part of your career? That is a great question. And the level of excitement, no. Um, it's just so high when it goes yeah. well in racing, the highs are high yeah. and the lows are low. Yeah. <laughs> and, but you know what, to an extent, yes. Um, for one thing, I love the camera. I've done a lot of video <laughs> yeah. and I really enjoy being on camera, especially if it goes well and I feel like it, like it went well. Yeah. And so to a lesser extent, and the same thing in, in the writing, 
I've been writing this column in Sports Car Magazine. It's the Sports Car Club of America's magazine. It's, yeah. I think circulation is about 60,000. It's pretty small, but hardcore racers and sports right, car people right. and, and race officials and workers. And I don't like the racing or the writing. It's kind of hard for me to make myself sit down and do it. Yeah. I'm always late on my deadline. <laughs> Same way I was in college. But after I've written it, I always enjoy reading it. I like reading my own yeah. writing. Yeah. Right? And I have a sense of satisfaction. Yeah. And I keep going back to Salieri and Mozart. I think about how Salieri was trying to make Mozart look bad because he was competition. And he said, the the music's not right. And and um, Mozart says, well, tell me where it's not right. Yeah. And he says, too many notes. Maybe it was the, actually, maybe it was the king who said that because he'd been uh, corrupted by Salieri. Uh, too many notes. And Mozart's like, too many notes? It's perfect. <laughs> what <laughs> notes would you remove? <laughs> and it's so wrong, but I, I read my writing. And I like it. And I'm like, yeah. I don't think I would change anything. Right. I, I'm saying what I say. It flows. You can't change this or it would mess that up. Yeah. And so I get that sense of satisfaction. And um, I can tell, too, when, when my it's hard to get going on writing. Yeah. But once I get going, mm. the world goes away and that focus Happens. It's not on the level of racing. Yeah. Um, but that focus happens. And I have some, such a sense of accomplishment when I'm done. Yeah. I've been doing this since 2003. Yeah. And what led me to the writing was an incident I had on track. Oh, this, cool. this scumbag <laughs> tried to take me out because he was mad at me about something. I never hit him. It's not unlike Pierre, actually. Uh, some guys, you know, it, it's a jungle out there. Yeah. And uh, this guy took me out and I wanted to write about it because I wanted to try to reduce that in racing. Right. I wanted to be a voice saying, look, it doesn't have to be this way. It's a sport and we've got rules. And um, so I wanted to write this one column. And I did. It was early. It was either the second or third column that I wrote in 2003. And I was genuinely worried about what I was going to write about next. And it's been 20, 2003, 20 years. And 12 columns a year for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of columns. Yeah. And um, I, I was able to find things. And now it's been 20 years. There's people reading this column that, that didn't read those columns 20 years ago. Yeah. And so I, I broached some of the same subjects because driving is pretty fundamental and basic. But I answering the question is, uh, yes, I do find that in the other endeavors. I, and I want to tell you a story about one of the high points of my entire video career. Yeah. For years at Motor Trend. I was their track driver at Motor right. Trend Magazine on video. Yes. And we did hot laps. 
And I'm very proud of what the magazine did there. They did it right. The cars had fresh tires. They were the right cars. We had timing. We had data. It is all real. You can go watch those videos on motortrend.com now. Yeah. It's real. We were not making that stuff up. And so I'm there and I just drove an Audi TTRS. Yeah. And in Audis, this would have been in the early 2010s. Yeah. I don't know, 2015, maybe. TTRS, Audi, great car, incredible engine, a turbo five cylinder. Love it. And it's like, it's a lot 400 horse or something great engine so i drove it but i was disappointed because it understeered a lot under power which a lot of audis did yeah because quattro with a small q distributes the power evenly front to rear 50 50 and that's not enough you need to send more to the back subarus have been that way for many years too and it makes them understeer too much under power and so I drove the car. I loved the engine. The car was cool, but it was an RS. And at Audi, when a car says RS, it means business. it's something special. Yeah. It's, and it had been that way for a long time, since at least the 90s. And I raced an RS6, something special, something very high performance and even track oriented. And I was not satisfied with this car. So I drive it. And what I did with Motor Trend was I would do the hot laps for time. And I'd get a time right away. Usually my best time was my first time. And nobody can beat it. (laughs) I'm really proud of that, too. Brag. Or not many. It would be hard to beat. It's a good time. I turned good times. You're not going to go out there and just beat that unless you're really good and your car's got fresh tires. Yeah. And uh, So I drive the thing, I come in and I get out of the car and immediately talk to camera. It's really cool. It's fresh. Yeah. And I give my impressions and I download like a race car driver. When you're talking, when you're a race car driver, your job is to find out how to go as fast as possible. Right. Faster. You're always looking for faster, always striving to be better, faster. And so when you look at your car, you look at it in the negative. You look at the car, what could be better here to make me faster? Right. And that's how a successful racing driver thinks he has to, or or his engineer has to. And um, I get out of this Audi and I'm frustrated with the shift program and the way it understeers under power and a couple other things. And uh, so I get out of the car. I talk about that to camera. And the way I wrapped it up was... You know, I talk about good things. They talk about some bad things. Uh, what am I? I? I I am polite, but honest. Yeah. Actually, your friend, Matt Farah, called me out on that once, you know? Yeah. He's like, he's like, you got to, if it's bad, you got to say it's bad. I said, I talk about the bad things. I'm polite, but honest. <laughs> he was like, eh, it's not good enough. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> it's my style. And I got out of the car. I'm talking to camera. I talk about the good things, the engine, the power. I talk about the understeer under power, which I didn't like, and the shift program, a couple things. And I say to the camera, I go, come on, Audi. It's an RS. Let's go. (laughs) 
And that's how I wrapped it. I love it. Guess what? Above me on the balcony, above Pitt Lane at Laguna Seca, WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca, I didn't know it. But the new chief executive of what we called the Motor Trend Group at the time was standing there with his posse listening. And they erupt into applause after a pause to make sure they didn't screw up the shot. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, and I'm loudy, let's go. Yay! And they're all (laughs) clapping and everything. And I was like, I didn't even know they were there. And that for me was like winning a race. Wow. It was so satisfying. Yeah. And such a, a vindication and a thrill to have the new president approve of yeah. what I do. So that was an example. I love that. that. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, well, first and foremost, I've seen every single episode of Mortar Trend Ignition, every single episode of Head to Head. You know, I'm a religious Good leader man. of the magazine. I've seen every episode of what you do with Haggerty, even what you do on with, what you've kind of guested on with Throttle House. So like, I, oh, as I've said, oh, wow. I'm a fan. I, I've consumed it all. I consume it all. And that's what I say when I say wow. that you are an authority for for listen, for viewers on whether a car is good or not in terms of its track performance. I really do mean that. Uh, and I mean that from a, my own perspective also. But what I really love about what you said there is uh, is this idea of the constant pursuit of improvement. So you're tr- as a race driver, you're always trying to go faster, always trying to get better. And that in itself as like, a mentality, right? To constantly be looking to get better and tweak and improve. Doesn't matter if it's race car driving or any other career, I think is a really powerful one. And even what you said there, polite but honest, you know, and I think I heard the interview where Matt Farah challenged you on that. Uh oh, but, good, but, yes. but I what I for me, I think that if we extrapolate that to like the corporate world, polite but honest is a very powerful tactic, right? So to be able to be transparent and candid, but do it in a respectful way that actually makes people welcome the feedback because I bet on more than one occasion in your career. And I think you did it with the Dodge Viper at one point you gave feedback. They acted on it and came back with a car that was better, faster. And then on more than one occasion, you set track lap records on more than one race car. So, you know, talk about amazing. You really have been following this stuff. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so, so for wow. me, I, I, I've, I hearing you talk about it from this perspective and then knowing what that translates to on the results side, unbelievable. And so it's just proof in the pudding of, you know, these types of strategies and approaches to development and 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 kind of tactics translating to results. So one thing that I, I find interesting is that also like your presence on camera went from just being the, the guy who did the hot laps to now being like a core part of like comedic bits, right? That actually <laughs> elevate the, yeah. the creativity of the content. Have Thanks you- Thanks to Jason Camisa, but yeah. Unbelievable talent in himself, but have you uh, also kind of consciously tried to learn and improve that aspect of your career as well, that on talent, or is that just kind of evolved naturally and you've just gone with the flow? Yeah, no, I haven't done a thing. I just go with the flow, just do it. And I'm just- so lucky to have had the opportunities and I I had a natural tendency for it. You know, I'm a very uncomfortable, I'm real comfortable in front of the camera. I hate a planned talk. Yeah. I don't want bullet points. I don't want to have to say anything 
I'm I glad I didn't give you any off, then. <laughs> yeah. Off the cuff is, is the way my brain works. Yeah. And uh, in one of the things that happened with Motor Trend, the way I got involved with them was in 2007 or so, I had a guy helping me as an agent. His name is Michael Stahlschmidt. And Michael was really good at introductions. And uh, we were testing our Mazda race car at Buttonwillow in California. And on the other part of the track at Buttonwillow, um, Motor Trend was there. And Michael knew a couple of those guys. I forget the names now, um, but um, he went over. He says, Randy, let me introduce you to these guys. So I went over there, talked to them. They let me drive a car. I was drifting a BMW M5. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we hit it off. They said, look, we would like for you to be on our best, what they call it? They called it best handling car, I think, at the yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Way back, like 2000. Before best driver's car. Yeah. Yes. And in 2009, the, I got to do it. And it was best handling car. And before that, they were getting a new pro driver every year. Right. After that, it was me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm proud of that. I, they kept calling me back. I got to keep doing it. And it was a wonderful thing. We would test 12 cars in, in two or three intensive days on the uh, street and on the track. And it just grew from the uh, fact that it, I fit. I fit. Yeah. I love the guys. I was really good at the track stuff. I could knock out these laps, not wreck the car, not go off, not spin, turn a time faster than the manufacturer's own engineers. Exactly. And they'd be like, how's he do that? <laughs> and so I'm proud of that. Well, then when Motor Trend got to a position where they didn't want to do that level of track testing anymore. I believe what happened was it just was too, it became too expensive. Yeah. And um, whatever, they decided not to do it. Well, guess what? Jason Camisa and my former Motor Trend uh, director, Anthony Esposito, two amazing talents. They said, Randy, we're working on something and we want you to be part of it. Well, it took a couple of years, <laughs> but, uh, and I still do some Motor Trend stuff. I just yeah. did faster with Newburn and Cotton. We did a show. It's really cool. It's going to be out soon. But um, the the Anthony Esposito and Jason Camisa got hooked up with Haggerty, the Haggerty channel that you mentioned. Yeah. And they finally got to a position where they can invite me to come out. I'm primarily typically a driver. Jason and Anthony do all the hard work. Jason does all the writing. That's brilliant. Hard. He's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's funny. He's knowledgeable. And Anthony is brilliant on the video. They're the best car videos on the internet, I'm telling you. And I get to be one small part of it. But they invited me out. And Jason and I are close personal friends. And I get to be in these comedic skits. Yeah. You know, like I just dressed as a British guy with the Rolls Royce on the one we did two weeks ago that you'll see soon enough. And so I'm glad you noticed that, Peter. Thank you. Yeah. No, and I didn't plan any of that. It just happened. So to a certain extent, I guess if you go in a direction 
that is naturally right for you, you're going to fit. Yeah. And if you're trying to push upstream against something that's just not working, you know, you need to be persistent, but you need to have that feeling inside that you're right for this. Yeah. You're in a good place. This is for you. And I want to make the best lawnmower there is. Yeah. And you stay with it. You just got to know that. It reminds me of a race where my dear old dad was in attendance. God rest his soul. And they interviewed dad. It's a long time ago, I think in the 2000s. And uh, they said, well, you know, what's it like having a son who's a race car driver, blah, blah, blah. And my dad, who would speak his mind, he goes, well, if he wasn't good at it, I'd have made him quit a long time ago. <laughs> uh, Inside, I knew I loved it, but I also knew I was really good at this. Yeah. Like really good at this. And um, I knew why, too, because I just knew things about how to drive and the blending of it, the the art beyond yeah. the science. And um so I was persistent. I stayed at it. I, and I also focused. I gave up everything else in life, which was another thing that was hard on my marriage with my wife, Linda, because she was the one making the money and making the house payments and buying the groceries. And every one of the few pennies that I got went into racing. And uh, that was the deal, though, when we got married. That was right. the deal before we were married. Uh, but I think she kind of got to where like, yeah, you know, Randy, you, you ought to, you need to be helping me out around the house. And I, I said, no, I'm racing. I'm working on racing. <laughs> but what, what worked out for me there was I saw a stupid little ad for instructors at the Skip Barber Racing School. And I had only been road racing for, at the, yeah, that was in 89, three years. I started in 85 and in 89, I started working for the Skip Barber Racing School as an instructor. And you probably heard that as an instructor, you learn so much Yeah. when you're trying to teach a subject. Maybe you didn't have had this experience. And it introduced me to the whole world of automotive driving events for sales training. Mm. I went that way because guess what it paid twice as much as being a driving instructor at skip barber so why not yeah but also i fit right. i became a teacher uh, and a driving instructor and these salesmen would come to a racetrack and drive the latest bmw and i would me and the other drivers who were doing it men and women we would try to try to teach them a little bit about the car and yeah, yeah, keep yeah. Them safe while allowing them to have a good time and yeah. there's always performance cars because we were at racetracks or doing autocrosses. That helped a lot in my marriage with Linda because I started making an income where I could help pay for things at the house. And then um, it helped me a lot in my career because I made contacts at manufacturers. Right, exactly. And with other drivers who were at my level of want to be pretty good but not really full-on pro yet in the 90s i did a lot of that it was a great transition i met guys on their way up and i met older guys on their way down yeah who were just looking to make a little money and 
uh, have some fun too, like John Morton, uh, David Hobbs, um, um, Bobby Unser, uh, some of these uh, names you may or may not have heard of from the old racing days. And so that helped me continue racing, um, even though it took such a focus and it was still driving, right? Yeah. We're still setting up courses. We're still, it was still the same subject. And that all comes under the general heading of persistence. Yeah. I didn't have any children. I admire racers who have children and still race. That's incredible. I, I didn't have the bandwidth for that. But I did marry into a stepdaughter, Linda's daughter, Kelly, whom I love. And Linda and I went separate ways. We got divorced 20 years ago, but I did not divorce Kelly. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. She's still my, my daughter. That's incredible. I mean, uh, as as a father of two little girls, right? Like that's just an amazing thing to hear. And so uh, I think it's very beautiful, but also this idea of persistence, I think again, another powerful takeaway. And like, even as you reflect on that, right? You could have very easily gone in and been a driving instructor for a Skip Barber, but then making that decision to yes, prioritize money because it was an enabler of many other things in your life, but then also yeah. seeing, hey, this connected me directly to manufacturers, which unlocks the next tier in my racing career. Like that is incredibly strategic, right? And, and so whether consciously being done in the moment or not, it, it, it you know, intuition and, and everything else, right? Drove you in that direction. And I think it's obviously very cool how everything shook out. And even hearing you describe like how the migration from Motor Trend over to Haggerty happened, I'm not surprised hearing that context around Motor Trend just because the production quality of all of that content was scaling and getting so crazy and big. I can only imagine the cost behind it. But then I think yeah. what's interesting is seeing Jason Camisa, as much as I loved his dynamic with Johnny Lieberman, like he seems to be creatively unleashed at Haggerty. And the content you guys are producing yes. there is by far the best on the internet when it comes to, to auto motive content so you know you, a huge huge fan of that stuff and, and man, you know you're sharp buddy you're exactly right the reason that camisa left motor trend and he left he wasn't yeah. fired or whatever was because he wanted he wasn't able to do creatively what he wanted to do yeah. uh, same with anthony esposito they you you nailed it yeah and and so i mean I appreciate that. But yeah, it's just uh, it, being able to kind of watch the evolution of all that and then seeing kind of your role in it. You know, I would especially now I, I know I've already kept you well over the time we had allocated for this. But I would be remiss if I didn't selfishly ask one little question just for me around your opinion of a car in case you've actually driven oh. it. Because I know you're a huge fan of the Camaro SS and everything to do with this most recent generation of the Camaro. Yes. I believe you even own one, but uh, beyond. But the problem is, is in Canada. I'm based out of Toronto. Those are all sold out. They're gone, through oh. to the end of production, and it was always impossible to get allocation. We don't get killed by dealer markups like you guys do in the U.S. Um, luckily, but allocation is brutal because we just don't have oh. the sales volumes. But oh. uh, so it's I. I'm unfortunately. The timing in my life when I'm ready to buy a sports car is it, it aligns to when a new Camaro is completely off the table and used ones are like 20 K over. So one, wow. the, one of the cars I'm super heavily considering is the GR Supra manual, the three liter manual. I'm wondering if you've driven that and I'm and I'm selfishly would love to understand what your opinion of that car is. I've driven it a lot. 
And the I like it better with the manual. Yeah, of course. Manuals are more engaging, more involving. And I grew up with them. And uh, can you match revs on downshifts? Yes, absolutely. That's my boy. Good for you. Um, the car, when I tested them, I found they varied a lot. Um, they they were twitchy. Twitchy. Right. In fact, one was so twitchy that we thought something was wrong with it. We I can't remember if it was the manual. It might have been before that. We even took it down to a dealer and had them check the alignment. <laughs> so it is a car with tremendous potential. Right. Basically a BMW Z4 underneath. That's right. I think in stock form, it's not completely sorted out. Okay. And I don't know why. I just, I don't think it's, the BMW handles better. And this is in the early days. Now, Camisa and I did a show with a manual Supra versus the Z. That's right. And the uh, Supra was way faster. Yeah. And they had similar power, kind of similar acceleration. But the new 400Z has explosive power and would generate big wheel spin real easily. And the new Z was just not hooked up like the Supra was. Yeah. Supra was a much better handling car. That leaves them wide open to the aftermarket. I'm sure that that Z can be tied down with a good aftermarket suspension system from somebody who's, who should I mention right now? AST shocks. Because <laughs> I got a set of those on my BMW E36 M3 race car. And uh, Bill Stein, got a lot of friends at Bill Stein. I bet yeah. they make a good package for that. But so I approve. The Supra is also very tunable, right? right. It's turbo. Because that inline six. Engine. Yeah, lack of not much turbo lag. The uh, Z had more. And the Z, when it comes on, it comes on hard, like too hard. Yeah, it was hard to control, and so Camisa and I were drifting these things around uh, horse thief track at uh, Willow Springs, and that video is available on Haggerty. You've seen it, I'm absolutely. sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, although you hear mostly Camisa talk about it, me a little bit, but not much. Yeah, because um, he's the writer; it's his show. I'm a driver and a sidekick, and I love it because it's not too hard. <laughs> yeah, that writing's hard. I'm, you know, I'm like, you know what you're doing, Jason. You go. <laughs> you just go and, and get it, buddy. Uh, so, yeah, I approve. I love it. I, I love it. Randy, I have to say uh, thank you on so many levels. You, you Thank you for entertaining that question because uh, that was a selfish one just for me. But thank you for being willing to do this podcast interview and honestly just sharing your story and all of these incredible stories. Uh, I have loved every second of, of extracting the learnings and, and just listening and hanging off your words. This has been a huge pleasure. I, I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you very much. Wow. You're good for my ego. <laughs> I needed to be pumped up because this week everything has gone wrong around my house. Oh man, no you know? way. Fridge died. They didn't deliver the new one. The power went out. The, all kind of stuff. So thank you very much. You made me feel good. And I appreciate that, Peter. It's a pleasure. And I will very much look forward to sharing this with uh, my followers. And uh, so they can hear the stories, some of which they've heard before. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's fun to get to talk about myself. And yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. And you were you were listening and you were very perceptive 
And I'm impressed with what you drew out of that. And I'm impressed with what you knew coming in. You have definitely been following. So thanks for making me part of your podcast. What's the name of it again? Own Your Potential. Own Your Potential. And I just think that I've just stumbled into all this crap. And uh, you made me feel good by pointing out some of the things that I decided. And I mean, like even in autocross, I decided to go into pro solo and commit. Yeah. I was the only guy who drove all the way to California to do the West Coast events. And it helped me win the championship and helped me make another step in my career. So I love it. I guess there's been some stuff that wasn't just accidental. And I appreciate you hearing and pointing that out. Thank you. It's a pleasure.